Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us meeting here at Central Campus, as well as those watching from one of our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Last month, I started this uh, mini-sermon series called Through the Wilderness, and we've been looking at the 40-year wilderness journey of God's people. As we conclude that series today, I promise not to leave you hanging in the wilderness. The good news is today we're going to go to the promised land. The primary focus of this sermon series is to help you be cognizant of God's way of preparing us for what is to come. The entire wilderness experience was a training ground for Israel to get them ready for life in the promised land. God imparted lessons in the wilderness that would define the rest of their existence in the land they will settle in. The wilderness is a common spiritual metaphor for a period of refinement in our life. It is a season of testing and trial. God allows us to go through seasons in the wilderness in order to deepen our walk with Him. It serves as a a preparation time for what is going to unfold next in your life. So a great question to ask in the midst of your wilderness experiences, what is God preparing me for? Dr. Robert J. Clinton teaches leadership in Fuller Theological Seminary in California. And one of his best books is called the making of a leader, recognizing the lessons and stages of leadership development. It is a fascinating book. Dr. Clinton studied the lives of uh, hundreds of leaders from three categories, historic, biblical, and contemporary. And through these studies, he identifies the process of how God develops leaders. You can see a clear pattern. Dr. Clinton points out, that one of the stages in leadership development is the life-maturing process. The wilderness is God's way of breaking into a person's life in order to cause serious reflection, which in turn leads to spiritual maturity. We all know that there is a significant difference between a successful leader and a mature, successful leader. There are successful people all around us. Dynamic, gifted, ambitious, full of incredible potential. But many of them, sadly, are deficient in character qualities. As a result, they're quite limited in their impact. But then there are godly leaders who have learned maturity lessons. It is through a problem, a crisis, a conflict, or a sickness, God gets their undivided attention to take them deeper in their spiritual lives. And they turn into men and women who carry a level of spiritual authority that differentiates them from the rest. Dr. Clinton points out in his book, it is difficult to go through maturity processing, even if you understand its positive long-term values. It is worse to go through it without this perspective. Rather than being frustrated with our circumstances, If we can see God's hand in this experience, we will not just survive from the wilderness experience, 
but we will learn a great deal from it. This brief period of testing will result in immense long-term value. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses was speaking to a new generation. The 40 years of wilderness wandering was behind them, and they were looking ahead to their time in the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses urges them to apply the lessons they have learned in the wilderness when they got to the promised land. We're going to continue our study in Deuteronomy chapter 8 today. So I'm going to ask us to stand as we read our text from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 6 to 20. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to Him and revering Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce, and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron, and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God, for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known to humble and test you so that in the end, it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods, and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Lord, we thank you for the inspiration of your word, that your word speaks to us today in our context. So we ask now that uh, you will... Minister your truths to us, that our hearts will be ready and receptive. That, Lord, the lessons that we have learned in the wilderness, we will learn to apply it throughout our lives. So we commit this time to the leading of your Spirit. Come and speak to us. We ask this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This past summer, I had the distinct privilege 
of teaching my wife how to drive. <laughs> no, I soon found out an undertaking like this can really test the strength of your marriage. So I told her, honey, why don't we play it safe and you start off with the driving school, I'll supplement it with extra lessons. And that was a wise idea. So after taking uh, driving lessons, uh, she grew a lot more in confidence, and my confidence was boosted as well. And I became her instructor. I'm glad I'm alive to tell the story. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> I gave my wife careful instructions, when to signal, reminded her to shoulder check, guided her when she had to make a left turn, scream and panic when there was a close call. <laughs> and soon my wife was driving quite well, and she went for her test and cleared it with flying colors on her first attempt and got her license. Now that she has a driver's license, she can drive on her own, but if you look at it, it will be the beginning of the real test, for she would not always have me beside my careful instructions, an extra pair of eyes, my incredibly calming presence. <laughs> I don't know about that, but anyway, from now on, she has to do it on her own, and that would be the true test of her skills. You know, Israel was in a similar place. In the wilderness, God was journeying with them as their personal instructor. He led them on a day-to-day -day basis. But they wouldn't have that luxury any longer in the promised land. They had to do it on their own. And that would be a bigger test. The focus of Deuteronomy chapter 8 shifts from the wilderness to the promised land. The time in the wilderness was over. There will be no more wanderings, no more delays, no more waiting. They were all set to enter the land of promise. Finally, God's plan for their life was about to be realized. See, God has no desire to keep you in the wilderness longer than it is necessary. The wilderness is a transitional time, but God's ultimate goal is to take you to the promised land. But the promised land, as Israel found out, will bring its own set of challenges. They had to learn how to walk by faith in the midst of prosperity, something they had never known for centuries. They had been slaves in Egypt for 430 years, following which they wandered through a dry stretch of land for another 40 years. So no one had any idea what they had in store. The seductions of the new culture, the pull of the exotic religions of Canaan, and the enticements of wealth. And Moses' single most concern seems to be how Israel would handle this newfound success, this coming prosperity. God had very clearly communicated to Israel the lessons he wanted to teach them in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Moses says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. In the wilderness, God wanted to teach two primary lessons that revolved around trust and humility. Interestingly, it is easier to demonstrate those two qualities in the wilderness in times of adversity. But the question for Israel was, will they apply those very lessons in this land of affluence? 
Now let's first look at trust. In the wilderness, the Israelites were forced to depend on God. Last weekend, we looked at God's miraculous provision of manna in the wilderness. The people lacked adequate food and water supply. Unless the Lord provided, there would be no food on the table. So not trusting God in the wilderness was simply not an option. They were constantly in need, and as a result, they were forced to rely on God for their provisions. But as soon as they stepped into the promised land, do you know what was one of the first things that happened? The provision of manna stopped abruptly. Joshua chapter 5 verse 12 tells us, the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. For 40 years they received supernatural provision. They didn't have to toil for the food. They had breakfast in bed every morning. But now in Canaan, a land with abundant resources, without any warning, the provision stopped. I'm sure the people went, as usual, that morning looking for manna, and they found none. Manna was designed for the wilderness. Now in a land of plenty, the people had to fend for themselves. Now hear the words of Moses as he describes the promised land in glowing terms. Verses 7 to 9. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce, and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron, and you can dig copper out of the hills. There is no scarcity of bread in the promised land. Everything would be in abundance. This is in complete contrast to the wilderness, a dry, barren stretch of land with venomous snakes and scorpions, rugged terrain, and thorny bushes. But now they were planted in idyllic settings, springs and streams gushing, valleys and hills, and a great selection of food and natural resources. This was indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. The landscape may have changed, but God's expectations would remain the same. God wanted Israel to continue walking in desperate dependence on Him like they did in the wilderness. That was the proof that they had learned their lessons. So Moses reminds them in verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. In the past, Israel was tested in the wilderness through deprivation, but now their test will be through the problem of plenty. In this new setting, it was so easy to move from that posture of dependence to self-sufficiency, to praise themselves instead of praising God. The promised land brought this tantalizing option of not trusting in God. They were in danger of being enamored by God's provision more than the God who provided for all their needs. Now, isn't that true of your life and mine? In the bad times, we cling to God. 
Nobody needs to remind you to pray or read the Bible. Now, when I pray with people here at the altar after a service, people come with a need in their life that they want to bring before God. But rarely will I ever pray with anybody who came here just to give God praise because everything is good in their life. Difficult seasons of life often produce spiritual fruit, but the happy times give you the option to choose your own course to become lukewarm and stop leaning on God. So that means our faithfulness is tested, not just when we are at the end of the rope, but more so when everything is going our way. A young woman who was a part of our church that I pastored in India was completely forsaken by her family for her decision to follow Jesus. Once talking to her, she told me about the days she was brand new in her faith. She literally had nothing. No family, no income, no friends. And God took her to a big city and provided for her day-to-day needs. Sometimes she had no idea where her next meal would come from. God would send manna. Someone gave her a little money, offered to buy her lunch. Her needs were all taken care of supernaturally. And she told me, every time I ate, I had to wipe the tears off my eyes and thank Jesus. Because I literally had nothing, and every meal was an expression of God's goodness to me. And as the years went by, the Lord blessed her in amazing ways. She had a good job, was doing really well in life. And once when my wife and I visited her, she told us, I forget to be thankful now that I don't have to pray for daily bread. It is so easy to take all of this for granted. That's true of all of us, isn't it? I don't know when was the last time my eyes welled up with tears when I prayed over my meal. When the times are good, when life is cozy, when the economy booms, when you're in good health, it is much, much harder to depend on God. Maybe there was a time in your life when you were in graduate school and you were on your knees every day as you were overwhelmed by the course Lord. Then you finish the degree, it's all done and dusted. You now have a great job. Do you still remember it was the Lord who carried you through? Or has that become a vague memory? When you or your loved one was in the hospital, that diagnosis was serious. And you prayed and everybody else prayed. The Lord answered your prayers and extended your life, granted healing. Do you still live today with gratitude? When your spouse left you all of a sudden, you were devastated. You were so heartbroken. You turned to the Lord in your distress, and the Lord brought healing to those deep hurts. Do you still reminisce that in your mind and thank God for restoring you? The real test of character is not just how we respond to adversity, but to affluence. Not leaning on God is never an option for a Christian. We walk in utter, total dependence from the beginning to the end all along the way. 
That was the lesson God wanted to instill in his people in the wilderness, and he wanted them to carry that lesson on to the promised land. Now let's look at the second lesson God wanted to teach his people around humility. In the wilderness, God humbled Israel. He stripped their pride by cutting off the supply lines. It is difficult to be proud when you have nothing. What is there to be proud of? No accomplishments, no productivity, no great exploits to put on display. That was Israel's story. In the wilderness, everybody knew that God was the source of all blessings. No one could take credit for manna. No one could boast about the clothes and shoes not wearing out for 40 years. It was all clearly supernatural. But in the promised land, they were in danger of becoming proud uh, for taking credit for their accomplishments. Now hear these uh, words of warning from Moses in verses 11 to 14. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Israel's military success would mean that the Canaanite nations would be overpowered. Israel would assert their authority over all of them. They will now live in fine houses with no mortgage payments. Isn't that incredible? They will have an abundance of flock and herd. Their silver and gold will increase. Everything they have will multiply. Surrounded by so many blessings, it was easier to forget who blessed them. Look again in verse 14. Moses is saying, Then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When they settled in the promised land, Israel was in danger of allowing their success to go to their head and forget their roots. Not long ago, they were slaves in Egypt under the iron hand of Pharaoh. They were making bricks out of straw. They lived in utter misery under the bondage of an evil empire. Their children were slaughtered right before their eyes. They worked ruthlessly, backbending labor day in and day out with no rights and privileges. And then they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, literally clinging to God for his daily provisions. And now that they had become a prosperous nation in the promised land, they were in danger of forgetting the lessons they learned in the wilderness as refugees. And it is this arrogance and self-sufficiency that Moses was cautioning them about. Even today, God sovereignly handpicks ordinary instruments for his divine purposes. And he may bless us and take us places. He may shower us with material blessings, a position of influence or power or a title. 
But it is critical that we never forget where we first started. Never lose sight of the time we spent in the wilderness where our faith was formed. So many times I see people who have become influential forget their roots. And they walk with a swagger. They succumb to a self-centered, egotistical pride that says, look at me, look at what I have accomplished. That is exactly what Moses was warning about here in our text. Verses 17 and 18. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. The subtle temptation is to allow our accomplishments to inflate our egos. It may be your hard work that has brought you thus far, but who gave you the strength to work hard, the motivation and the desire, the opportunities and the favor? It is God who gives us the ability. Anything good in your life is a gracious gift from the hand of God. It is totally undeserving. So the rightful attitude is to give God the praise and testify of what he has done rather than drawing attention to ourselves. When Israel was fleeing from Pharaoh's army, and God saved them. That wasn't a time to talk about their sea-crossing skills. But sing of God's power to overthrow the chariots and horses and submerge them underwater. When God miraculously took care of them in the wilderness, it wasn't a time to brag about their wilderness survival skills, but to proclaim God's ability to sustain them in trying circumstances when they conquered nations far greater and stronger than they were. It is not so they could blow their own trumpet, but give credit to God who fought all their battles. As followers of Christ, we today are so much like Israel. When we boast in our status, our gifts, our accomplishments, our plans, we tragically misplace the focus on ourselves rather than on God. For we too were once slaves, slaves to sin, in bondage to the devil. We had no righteousness of our own. We were morally superior to nobody. We all were dead in our sins. There's nothing that we could have done to earn a right standing with God. And it is in that helpless state that Jesus reached out to us. Our chains were broken and we were redeemed not by perishable things like gold and silver, but by the precious blood of Jesus. We received the free gift of his grace. We were made part of God's family. We were given a life, a hope, and a future. Where is the room for boasting in all of this? There's one anchor that always holds. It is Jesus. So the scripture tells us the ones who boast should boast in the Lord. I tell you, it is easy to remain humble when you're in the wilderness. But the test is, will you remain humble 
when you're showered with accolades. The great danger of wealth and abundance comes when it makes you think you are the center of your life and God is no longer necessary. And it causes you to forget God and shut Him out of your life. Arthur Philip Yancey mentions about a woman he knew who was raised by deaf parents. And she would simply close her eyes to shut off her parents and make them upset. And her poor parents had no other way to communicate with her except by signing. And Yancey offers a a vivid imagery here when he writes, As I think of that young girl, her eyelids sealed tight against the frantic hand motions of her parents, I get a picture of how God would feel when we shut him out. And that's what Israel did over and over. They suffered from spiritual amnesia. Whenever life was good, they went far from God. But when things became hard, they returned back to their faith. And you can witness this repetitive cycle throughout their history. Unfortunately, that is not just true of Israel. It is true of so many of our lives today as well. How can we break this cycle? The book of Deuteronomy can be summed up in one word. Remember. It is a call to recollect God's gracious acts from the past. We overcome this cycle through remembering. Remember the trials in the wilderness and God's faithfulness to you. Remember your calling that God has set you apart. Remember whatever blessing you have in life today comes from the Lord. Whether we are in the wilderness or we are living secure in the promised land, whether life is rocky or everything is going nice and smooth, in the school of hard knocks or when life is comfortable and easy, we need to remember God and never take our eyes off Him. Just as Moses commanded the people to remember, the Lord Jesus gave us a similar commandment as well. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus was making reference to his own sacrifice as he instituted the Lord's Supper. Nothing will keep us more centered in our Christian lives than remembering the cross on a regular basis. All of our blessings, everything that we have today as Christians flows from the cross where Jesus took the place that belonged to us. And we are forever grateful that the Father gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's a true story about a man named John Griffith. He worked in one of the great railroad bridges by the Mississippi River in the 1930s. His job was to sit in the control room and operate the enormous gears of the bridge. John's eight-year-old son was hanging out with him that day and just having a great time with Daddy. 
John's little boy watched with wide-eyed excitement as his dad operated the lever of this gigantic bridge and raised it for ships to pass through. That afternoon, as they were having lunch and sharing stories and having a wonderful time together, John totally lost track of time. And at that moment, they suddenly heard the shrieking whistle of a distant train. It was time to lower the race bridge for the Memphis Express was passing through. John asked his son to stay put and ran at a furious pace. He managed to climb the ladder and reach the control room. He was literally shaking. Going into the control room, he was about to pull the lever down to lower the bridge, and John looked to make sure that the path below the bridge was clear. And to his utter horror, he noticed something. In the gearbox that moved this gigantic bridge was his eight-year-old son. This little boy had tried to follow his dad and had accidentally fallen off the narrow walkway and his leg now was wedged between the two main gears. By this time, the oncoming train was very close and there was no time to save his son. And John was faced with a choice. He would let all the people in the train die or pull the lever down and crush his own boy to death. With no other solution available and the train just seconds away, John buried his face under his left arm and plunged down that lever. The bridge came down just in time for the Memphis Express to pass through safely. Sobbing uncontrollably, John Griffith looked at the windows of the train that was passing by. A businessman was reading his newspaper. Ladies were sipping tea. Most passengers were engaged in idle conversations. No one looked up his way. No one had an idea of the gravity of what had happened and the extent of John's sacrifice on their behalf. And pounding that glass in the control room, John cried out in agony, What is the matter with you people? Don't you know that I sacrificed my only son for you? Don't you care what is wrong with you? No one answered. No one looked. No one cared. That is a true story, a graphic depiction of a father's heart. And yet as we read the Bible, we come to know 2,000 years ago, God the Father was faced with a similar agonizing choice. It was either the life of his son or the life of the entire human race. And God the Father sacrificed His Son so we can be forgiven of our sins and receive abundant life. That is the most extravagant sacrifice of all. And yet there are millions of people going through life without realizing that sacrifice, not knowing the gravity of what took place, totally cold and indifferent to the magnitude of the cross and its personal application for their life. Are you one of them? Then stop and surrender your life to Jesus Christ, for that is the only way to peace with God. And we know that Christians, even Christians, can get caught up in the maze of life, 
and forget the price Jesus paid for us and become preoccupied with ourselves and our comfortable little world. Today, I want to call us to remember to consciously bring to your mind the gracious act of God on your behalf. In a few moments from now, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper, which is a reminder to reflect on the great sacrifice of our Savior. The hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote these words, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a wretch as I? Was it for crimes that I had done, he groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. And the refrain goes, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. The Lord's Supper is a call to remember the sacrifice of Jesus for you. And remembering is not just a mental acknowledgement. It involves our active participation. The Lord's Supper, that is why, is not a dull religious ceremony, but it has profound spiritual implications. Whenever we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, we are recalling and reapplying the gospel to our lives. As we chew the bread, and taste the juice, they remind us of the precious sacrifice of our Lord. It brings to our mind that Jesus died for us, and we are no longer our own, but we belong fully to him. I'm going to ask us to close our eyes right now and prepare our hearts as we participate in the Lord's Supper. At this time, I would invite the communion service to come forward, but the rest of us, let's close our eyes and look to the Lord in prayer. God, we stand amazed in your presence today, truly overwhelmed by the magnitude of your sacrifice. There was a time we were guilty, covered in sin, living in darkness, going our own way. But you reached out to us. You opened our eyes to the truth. You set us free from the bondage. You brought us from darkness into your light, and now we are part of your own family. For that, we give you thanks, and we remember what you've done for us. I pray, God, as we participate in this experience, that it will draw us even more closer to you. It will help us to understand more what Jesus has done for each one of us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I want to read from Luke chapter 22. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So what we are distributing right now, these are symbols 
but they are powerful symbols that communicate a far deeper meaning. The body of Jesus that was broken for us, the blood of Jesus that was shed so we can now be brought into the light. Now, if you're not a Christian, today is an opportunity for you to commit your life to Jesus Christ, and even you are welcome to celebrate in this meal along with us. But if you're not ready to make that decision today, I would ask you to kindly allow the elements to pass by. The rest of us uh, take the elements and hold it, and we will partake of it together in the end. I'm going to ask all of us to stand right now. Once again, I want to issue the call to remember whatever season of life you are in, whether you're in the wilderness, life has treated you well. We are standing today only by the grace of God. And what we are holding in our hand represents that, God's grace to each one of us. Remember, Jesus died, and we are no longer our own. Our lives fully belong to him. The body of Jesus was broken for us. Let's partake of this bread with gratitude. The blood of Jesus was shed for the remission of our sins. Let's uh, partake of this cup with gratitude. Would you please join me for closing prayer? God, we are grateful to you for teaching us lessons about walking through the wilderness. Thank you for the lessons that we have learned on dependence and humility. And we know, God, that in those times of difficulty, you instill these lessons in our heart so we never walk away from you, never cease to trust in you. All through our life, we will demonstrate this attitude of desperate dependence. Remember who we are is by the grace of God to give you all the credit and all the glory because we deserve nothing. So today, Lord, we pray for all of us, especially for the ones who are walking through the wilderness, that they will fix their eyes on Jesus, that you will shape them and prepare them for what you're going to do next in their life. I pray for all of us, God, that you will give us the joy of walking closely with you, that you will use us to fulfill your purposes and plan for our life and for this world. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. 